Hello, folks. Welcome to Environmental Harmony, the podcast. I'm your hostess, Bethany Latham, and I am speaking with makers and doers and entrepreneurs, exceptional people who are reinventing the standard and creating new solutions for humanity's tomorrow today. Welcome. Welcome to episode 10. Today, it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to be able to speak with Dr. Elaine Ingham. Dr. Ingham is one of the world's leading soil microbiologists. Her discovery of the soil food web, which is also the name of her business, has just completely transformed soil science. And the work she and her team are engaged in is truly world-changing. Career opportunities, people. Listen to the show. I hope that you get so much from it. I'm taking her Soil Lab Tech Analyst certification courses right now so that I can begin to implement these methods for my landscaping clients. And my mind is just continuously being blown apart by the information. It's, it's astounding. So I hope you all enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Here we go. Just one more wee little side note here. If you are listening to this episode, no problem, proceed. However, there is a video version of this episode on YouTube in case anyone prefers to watch the conversation. Alrighty, here we go. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on my podcast. Oh, great. Thank you. It's always fun to meet a student who's enjoying the uh, uh, newer, better understanding of the soil. That's um, fantastic. We've got to do it for the whole world. We've got to get everybody understanding that we're just going to go downhill really fast if we keep nuking everything. Absolutely. I love your approach to soil science. It's so different from anything that I've gotten anywhere else. I feel like you're really, really onto something and that the message needs to be spread around. Yep. It's a a different paradigm. You know, it's, it's like a... Um, Western man came over to this continent and they just saw it as a, a huge challenge to you know, beat nature back into submission and you know, then they could have their way with um, that. That's an attitude about a lot of men towards women, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we've got to show the error of their ways and that you are not going to be able to survive um, with that attitude about um, interacting with other things. Absolutely. So to start off, could you just give the listeners um, a bit of your background? Sure. Um, how far back do you want me, me to go with the background? Well, um, that is entirely up to you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was born in Minnesota, and every once in a while you'll hear the Minnesota accent starting <laughs> to come out. Uh, don't you know? Uh, my dad was a veterinarian. Uh, he was the head of the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology in veterinary medicine at the University of Minnesota. So my dad would always take me out on farm when he, you know, when I was around, when he needed some help, um, you know, and I got to go out and play spy for my dad. Um, um, you know, what is present in the pasture? What are the cows eating? And that often explained what uh, the problem really was. It wasn't the what was coming in the feed bags. It was that there was absolutely no grass left in the uh, pastures for the cows to eat. So they would eat um, all kinds of things that would make them very sick. And so that was kind of my introduction to science. My dad sat me down at a microscope and said, count the E. coli. 
uh, when I was six years old. So I, I think that kind of influenced me to go and be interested in um, ecological kinds of things. How do things interact with each other? And we need to understand that because nature has been around for the last, oh, what are we talking, four billion years? And she's maybe had enough time to work out all of these different interactions and make things work. So why do we think that we know better than the um, than nature, that we can come along and just whack nature upside the head, pay her no attention, don't have to do things in a, a logical fashion that's not going to harm anything. Why do we think, why do we have that attitude as a, a whole race? And so we've got to change things back, you know, what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, I did my uh, master's, my undergraduate was done at uh, St. Olaf College in Minnesota. Oh, you betcha. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oy vey. Uh, <laughs> so um, I was pre-med for that. My parents just assumed that, uh, that I would be a doctor because I had the grades and all of that stuff. And I went and worked at the heart hospital at the University of Minnesota where I would have gone to school and started medical school the next year. And I met a lot of the professors who were going to be teaching me, and they really were not admirable people. Hmm. And I, I just, I can't, I can't deal with, you know, the kind, that kind of attitude. And so I decided that I wouldn't go to medical school. Instead, I would go to Texas A&M in marine microbiology. So I applied to them, um, immediately got um, accepted. So went down to Texas A&M and my major professor put me to work working on what are the organisms in the digestive system of oysters. and what can we do to the biology to help those oysters grow? And so worked on that kind of uh, approach, developing a method for growing some of the bacteria in the digestive systems of the oysters that no one had ever been able to culture before. Well, I was long since uh, convinced that doing the counting using a microscope was a much better way to really understand what was going on in the digestive system of that, um, of those oysters and freshwater mussels and things like that. Mm-hmm. So my husband and I got married while we were in grad and uh, at Texas A&M doing our master's degree. And uh, I always like to give my husband a bad time that I'm the senior um, researcher. I'm the senior doctor in our family because uh, in the in the ceremonies to go through and get your doctorate, I was always first. Uh, and so I'm the senior <laughs> um, doctor in, in our family. So he's got to pay attention to what I say. Um, <laughs> it's great to tease him that way. Um, he doesn't doesn't you know fall into that category at all any other any time. But it's a lot of fun to tease him. So from Texas A&M, finished up our master's degrees um, about the same time, and we made the agreement that we would go to the university where the two of us both got research assistantships. And so it ended up, we went to um, Colorado State University, and my husband continued working with nematodes, so you can kind of see where 
he and I are very closely related and in interest. His organisms eat my organisms. I absolutely. That must be a very stimulating dynamic there. Yep. And um, well, you should talk to my kids sometime. They're they're like, don't talk science anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> you leave bacteria and fungi out of the conversation. <laughs> yep. Nobody, no talking about who's eating who in the soil and how disgusting it is. <laughs> <laughs> what they leave behind. So they're absolute rule. We can't discuss <laughs> those things at dinner time, but of course we do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm curious, our- just really quickly, did you choose to study marine microbiology because you were interested in science or did you intend to work with like marine systems initially? I initially intended to work with marine systems, both my husband and I. Mm-hmm. Um, only, you know, when you're in graduate school, you start worrying about um, what are we going to be able, what kind of jobs will we be able to get in the world of marine microbiology or my husband in marine nematology. And it, it wasn't good. Um, and so we decided it was kind of time to take a shift in focus. And since the place that gave us both research assistantships were both of them were in soil related things. So I went, uh, my major professor at uh, Colorado state university was Dr. Donald Klein. And the project he had for me was to start looking at fungi in soil and how do we determine that the fungi are active and doing something in soil as opposed to being dormant or on their way to being dormant on their way to dying. And they, you don't do much work as you're getting ready to die um, or go dormant. So that was the, my, my PhD work was to work developing methodology that would allow us to differentiate um, active fungi from inactive fungi or dead fungi. And so that's my work with the fluorescein diacetate, which is a very good way to tell whether those organisms are metabolizing very rapidly. Fluorescein diacetate has to be taken up within the cell through an active transport process. So it takes energy, it takes an intact cell membrane. You must be alive and active to take up the fluorescein diacetate. You have to be making esterases in order to cleave the two acetate groups off that fluorescent um, stain, it doesn't fluoresce, it doesn't pick up energy, wet light wavelengths mm. at one uh, wavelength and re-emit at a longer wavelength, unless it's very, very active. So really good way, way to tell that your fungi are active, but you can't be using indirect methods of assessing the fluorescence because all kinds of other things are active in soil and they take up the stain and they are going to be glowing that yellow green color. So we were still using the same direct count, um, you know, put a drop of the sample on the microscope and look at uh, how, what's the length of the fungal hyphae that was green and glowing. What's the diameter? Okay. So there you can measure your active. You then just turn the bright field lamp on. And now you can do the regular direct in um, direct um, uh, microscopy, and um, you can get the total number. So active versus total. It kind of led me to start doing some other kind of ratios at the same time, looking at um, total fungal biomass as compared to a- uh, total bacterial biomass, and 
starting to get a, a clue that there, there's something solid there because when you're in very early successional plant species and, and, and that's the only thing growing very early in succession, it's all bacteria. Fun, there's not a fungus to be found basically. And right. certainly if you find a fungus, it's probably not going to be active. It's just hanging out, waiting for all those bacteria to go away mm-hmm. and bacterial biomass. Whoa, just billions of cells fluorescing happily. Um, but as you move up in succession, we could see that the fungi started to increase while the bacteria started to drop. And so we could look at that ratio and kind of tell that we were right in this um, area of succession where things like onions and garlic and lettuce and coal um, you know, crops, things like that, they grow best under those conditions. As that fungal biomass keeps, to, keeps increasing then the things that are selected for are like um, potatoes and tomatoes and your, your other vegetable. And then as you go on, you get to an equal ratio of fungi to bacteria, and that's the best for row crops. Keep going, keep building that fungal biomass or letting nature build that fungal biomass, and you're going to move into the shrub, vine, uh, bush stage of succession, and then here comes deciduous trees, and then Finally, conifers, where there are massive amounts of fungal biomass. And, you know, some of the papers that have been written showing that if you take a, a, a cupful of that, that soil from a forest system early in the springtime before any of the things that eat that fungus are awake, three, 75% of the weight of that cup of soil is actually fungal biomass. So 0.75 of a cup of fungi and everything else is in only a quarter of a cup. So very, very fungal dominated. And if you want to grow conifers, you better have that that fungal biomass in the soil or you're going to have sick, unhappy, unhealthy uh, plants that just aren't going to grow very well. Right. So for listeners, I think on the one end of the spectrum where you've got these super fungus rich soils, we're thinking like old growth forests. And then on the super bacteria heavy end of the spectrum, that would probably be best exemplified by like weeds. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Short lifespan creatures. Yep. They suck nutrients out of the soil. They suck water. They don't care what, you know, that they're respiring most of it gladly, happily, you know, drying your soil out for you and (laughs) uh, producing billions of seeds that then blow off someplace else and start to start the whole growth cycle. And it's like every two weeks, you've got a massive number of seeds being formed and blowing away. And now they germinate, they grow. So you can go from a pretty nice pasture, a pretty nice agricultural field to I can't find my corn. Where is it? Because right. all those weeds have grown up and you're not going to have a good good yield of corn under those conditions. So what is it that really gets rid of the weeds? You've got to go through succession. And what we've been finding as well as other researchers, for example, in Japan, um, people in South Africa are showing the same thing we have, where if we shift that nitrogen pool, you know, and when you're in that very early successional stage, 
almost all of the um, nitrogen is present in nitrate. Mm-hmm. Very bacterial dominated soil. The instant that any NH4 shows up in that soil, it's going to be converted into nitrate. Just it's faster than you can measure it. So when you're in a weed field, that's all there is typically is nitrate. Now you start getting some fungi growing in there, and it can take an effort to get that fungal biomass up and going. But until you do, you won't have any ammonium present in your soil. But those uh, fungi start growing. And what you'll notice is now we've got nit- uh, NH4, ammonium, in the soil, and the nitrate drops, and the weeds start to go away. You keep increasing that fungal biomass, the bacteria get lower and lower. So you're dealing with, by the time you get to an old growth forest, there is no nitrate in that soil. It's all NH4. And for, you know, there's a few papers where they actually discuss that in the forestry um, journals uh, about, they just don't understand why the nitrate goes away. We, we can't we can't grow healthy plants unless we've got nitrate. Eh, wrong. So a whole change in mental attitude about forms of nitrogen had to happen. And it was not a fun fight in many instances. Yeah. So after you're doing all of this research at the University of Colorado, then you went on to do your PhD somewhere. Am I correct? Well, um, I did my PhD at Colorado State University. Oh, all right. Yeah. So that was with Dr. Donald Klein. I stayed there. Both my husband and I stayed there. Um, we were, as soon as we got done with our PhDs, we were brought on board as um, uh, research uh, postdocs um, at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab at Colorado State University. And then um, I went to the University of Georgia because I'd already accepted a job there when my husband got asked to take a pos- uh, faculty position at um, Oregon State University. So for a year, while I finished up the research as a research fellow at the University of Georgia, um, we kind of had a long-distance romance going on there. Wow. (laughs) So, and we had, gosh, we had two kids at the time, so that was even funner. Right. That sounds really fun. Yeah. (laughs) I had one kid, he had the other kid, and it it was kind of, it was a little stressful that year. But then um, I got a job at Oregon State University as well. And so um, I was, you know, now the family is back together again. And uh, so both of us, um, in, uh, I was a research professor. My husband was regular um, um, tenure track uh, faculty. And so started doing research. And my part of looking at all these different kinds of ecosystems that we have in Oregon mm-hmm. and understanding what is the fungal to bacterial biomass ratio? What is going on with protozoa and nematodes? And starting to show that it's not just in, in Colorado where you get the um, shift from very bacterial to less bacterial, a little bit more fungi, all the way to total fungi, very, or, um, very little um, nitrate left in the soil. So time and time again in different ecosystems, we've showed that the same kind of successional pattern and really, that succession is driven by the kinds of microorganisms in your soil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not driven by the trees inherently do better for some reason. It's There's a solid, re- reproducible shift 
every time we have uh, a clear understanding of what that successional system is. It means that when you go out to plant a tomato, you really want to look at the soil and see if the balance of the bacteria and fungi, protozoa, and nematodes are within reason for that tomato. If you're trying to put a tomato into something that's strictly bacterial biomass, it is not going to do well. Mm-hmm. It does not have the protection. It doesn't have the nutrient cycling that it requires. And so that was another thing that we did was uh, my husband had looked for his uh, some of his research. He had looked at what happened when you increased you know, so sterilized soil, which is really dirt, um, was put into these containers, and then we added back in um, uh, uh, bacteria or just fungi or fungi and bacteria, and then fungi and bacteria and fungal feeding or bacterial feeding nematodes to show you know to do the nutrient cycling, and there beyond shadow of a doubt where you had more and more diversity of different kinds of groups, as you got those predators into the system, uh, a huge increase in the amount of nitrogen in the plant material itself. Whereas if you didn't have those predators, most of the the plants in the system uh, couldn't survive. They died long before the end of the experiment. So not all of them did, but you know, uh, you could see the definite trend there. So that's the ecological monograph that he's the primary, the first author on the paper. I'm the third author on the paper because I just played with bacteria and fungi and protozoa. Um, so it was uh, a lot of fun doing all that, that work, but showed that nutrient cycling in the soil um, has to have all of these organisms Mm-hmm. If you don't have all these organisms in the proper balances, then you don't have any choice but to use the inorganic soluble fertilizers. All of those inorganic soluble fertilizers are salts. Mm-hmm. And they're taking water away from all of the microorganisms in the soil. So you're killing them off. You're sucking the water out of their bodies with that salt application. And now those microorganisms die. Right, so and, then you might have the more appropriate levels of those like nutrients in the soil, but you don't have the the biology to cycle any of it and make it plant available. Is that correct? Right. So you know, if you put on nitrate fertilizer and there is no biology present in that soil to hold on to it, it leaches right through. Mm-hmm. It's going wherever the water's going. And so you get some rainfall and all of that nutrient starts leaching into the groundwater, leaching into the rivers and lakes and streams, and you're destroying every ecosystem downstream of you when you do that because there is nothing left in the soil to grab onto and hold those nutrients that don't come in contact with the plant. So. The plant is normally going to be the thing that puts the exudates, the sugars and the proteins and the carbohydrates out into the soil to wake up very specific species of bacteria or fungi that the plant needs to have them make those enzymes. So it's really Mother Nature kind of going poke, poke, poke. Um, Wake up, guys. I I need you to go out and get some magnesium. (laughs) I want you to make enzymes. <laughs> right. And it's like, you haven't fed me enough, Mr. Root. 
<laughs> a little bit more this way. Okay, now I, now I've got the energy to go make the enzymes to pull the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, whatever it is the plant ordered. Right. And those nutrients go into the bacteria and fungi. They're enzymes. The nutrients go into the bacteria and fungi, but bacteria nutrients in the biology in the bodies of the bacteria and fungi are not available to the plant. So this is like the pantry. Your plant is developing the pantry and then she knows that that will attract the right um, protozoa, the right nematodes, the right microarthropods to eat the bacteria or fungi, which are, of course, course, right there at the next to the root. Mm -hmm. So when the predators eat the bacteria and fungi, that releases the nutrients in a plant-available form at the rate the plant wants them. So the plant takes up what it needs. If there was any excess nutrient released into the soil, those bacteria and fungi that were not eaten by the protozoa, the nematodes of the microarthropods, they'd get that excess and tie it right up, right there to the root system. So the next go around, those nutrients would be released. So we, we've got to get those proper balances out into the soil. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And for people who may not understand fully how this whole cycle works, who are listening to this podcast and being like, totally new introduction to soil biology. So the plant is photosynthesizing above, in its aerial above ground parts, collecting energy from the sunlight, transferring that down into its roots, where it then basically essentially like trades those carbon, mostly carbon molecules, sugars, to all of these bacteria and fungi that are right around its roots. And that's how that soul cycle begins. And then the slightly larger predators, which are these crazy alien looking monster, amazing creatures. <laughs> yeah. Like nothing I had ever imagined before looking into this. The protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, are all slightly larger. And then when they eat those, they it's basically like a human. Once if we eat, we're going to exude a lot of what we have eaten. And that's where, where the plant is able to uptake those. Yep. And it's kind of, when you think about the soil, it's kind of like your digestive system turned inside out. Because in human beings, it's a cylinder going through us with all these wonderful bacteria and fungi and protozoa and nematodes growing in your digestive system, doing all these specialized functions all the way along. And without those microorganisms, you wouldn't get the nutrition that you need. There's no way to turn that hot dog into something that can be taken up by your blood unless these microorganisms do all of that work for you. Well, kind of take that um, cylinder and now just turn it inside out. Now you've got a root. With all those little, you know, root hairs on there. And think about the bacteria and fungi now being on the outside. And one of the wonderful things, both in the human gut as well as in the soil, is this massive cloud of bacteria and fungi. And I actually like to think of it as the castle wall. And the, the fungi or the protozoa are charging around on their, you know, beautiful white horses all dressed in white protecting your root system from all the different bad guys. So there is no disease. There is no way a bad guy could get through that castle wall 
get past all the knights in their shining armor and attack your root system. You start killing those organisms off by putting out too much um, inorganic fertilizer or using any of the toxic pesticides, any of the herbicides, and you've killed off massive amounts of those organisms that would otherwise be protecting your root system. You've shut down nutrient cycling. So the plant with no nutrients that it can take up is now stressed. It's now no longer protected by that castle wall. So how can it possibly resist disease? Mm -hmm. Whammo. You've all of a sudden got disease that spreads through your agricultural field at an unbelievable rate. So we've got to get these organisms back into the soil. And then you have to keep that whole system aerobic. Mm -hmm. You've got to maintain that movement of oxygen down into the soil, which means you cannot allow compaction to happen. You have to open up those um, airways and passageways, the hallways to do that job of pumping oxygen down deeper and deeper into your soil. So how do you build that structure? What is it that is going to make all of those micro-sized hallways and um, walkways and passageways allow oxygen and water and your root systems to go deeper and deeper down into the soil, getting the water that's now stored in that soil? If you don't have any good structure, that water just leaches or more likely overland flow, erosion is going to happen. That water doesn't get into your soil at all. So it washes down the hill and it washes a lot of your good topsoil away at the same time. We have to stop that. Right. How is it all we All the nutrients build? too. Mm-hmm. And so how do we build that, that hallways, those hallways, those passageways? It's called bacteria. With the glues that the bacteria make, they're going to be taking all the small particles, binding it together. But as soon as it glues all of this stuff together, now you've got an air passageway. You've got a way that water and oxygen in the root can get deeper. Well, then there's going to be a fungus that comes along, and it's going to wrap its hyphae around this aggregate with the next aggregate, with the next, with the next, the next, and the next. And and they build macro aggregates that you can see with your eyes. Right. So you want to be picking up your soil. You know, if you go down to pick up your soil and you just smash your fingers into hard rock-like clay that's so solid, okay, there's no oxygen, no water, no organisms, no root systems getting through that. And you're consigning your plants to maybe, you know, the top couple inches of your soil. They can't go down any farther, so they go sideways. Now they start fighting within the plants that are next to them, how can any of them be um, unstressed? How can any of them have a good life when they're fighting for every drop of water, for every you know, nitrogen molecule, sulfur, magnesium, calcium? Mm-hmm. It's warfare. Those are sick, unhealthy, unhappy plants. And they let you know by catching a disease very rapidly. Right. I took an arborist course. So I did the arborist certification a couple of years ago and they teach you that, that trees roots grow out in the top three feet of soil. And that's where most of the roots are. And in taking your course and hearing your experience in the cave system, where you found those roots, living roots, hundreds of feet below the ground surface, that makes so much sense that if the space is there 
the roots will continue to grow down in search of water and nutrients and really and then they will never be stressed for water or nutrients and they can resist just about everything mm-hmm. if um if they've if they're good and healthy it's like in some of the fires that we've seen people have come back to us and said their house um you know they were treating around their house with all of this good compost and compost teas and compost extracts building soil structure um all of their plants were fully healthy uh, fully hydrated, even when it's dry, dry, dry in California. And then when the fire went through, all of their neighbors' houses burned, but not theirs. Wow. It's an interesting piece of observation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it would be nice to, yeah, who's going to volunteer their house to go through the Paradise Fire um, or whatever's come along? Uh, in order to make to be able to show that this is this is the way to protect our property when we're in a part of the world that has terrible um, fires in the uh, late summer. So it's interesting that we've noted that relationship several times, but we need the solid science done, um, and we'll have to you know, get some somebody who's willing to do that testing. And see if that's, you know, this, this hypothesis about why it works. We've got to build structure in the soil. We've got to capture the water that comes in the springtime or at snow melt. So that all those pores deep down in your soil are halfway filled with um, water. Yeah. So, so what we're seeing when we see that compaction and the tree roots and plant roots battling for one another is really just an effect of unnatural compaction. Yeah, the damage that human beings have done to that soil where we don't realize that we're harming it. I I like to give the benefit of the doubt to people who use inorganic fertilizers and pesticides and all those toxic things going on their land that they just don't know the damage that they're doing. And yeah, we've got to get out there and get that information and a podcast like this is a wonderful way to do it because you'll reach so many people that it will build and it will grow and it'll um you know, hopefully that's the hope <laughs> someday turn the tide yeah. where you cannot grow things with inorganic fertilizers you can't um use herbicides or pesticides you know and, and it's people will ask me well how is it that you don't need the pesticides well remember um, if we've got nice, healthy plants where they're getting all the nutrients they need every second of every day, they're getting the nutrient that they need. They're getting plenty of water, so they're fully hydrated. They are um, resistant to any disease. Then you don't have to use inorganic fertilizers. You don't have to use pesticides. You don't need herbicides if you get that nitrate, at least some of it converted into ammonium. So. Those are unnecessary things. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we're still being subjected to, you know, the uh, people out there that say, oh, you can't grow plants without um, nitrogen fertilizer? You know, think about your favorite old growth forest. Those sequoia trees have been standing there for 2,000 years. And every year, each year, they take up more nutrients from the soil in that forest then our agricultural crops 
take out of the soil and get transported away and get sold at market. So how is it that these trees can somehow magically survive where you don't have enough nutrients to grow your plants, which is what we're always told about the agricultural systems. You've Mm -hmm. got to be putting on the inorganic fertilizers to replace those nutrients that you shipped off to market. Well, no, you don't. Until the day you run out of sand, silt, clay, rocks, pebbles, boulders, parent material, you've got the nutrients in your soil to grow this upcoming um, crop. So you don't need to put out the inorganic fertilizers. You know, sit down and do some back of the, the envelope. If your root systems only go down this far, okay, you are in trouble. But if your root systems go down as deep as they can go and think of like something on spinach, its root system will easily go down four or five feet. Think about corn. Its root system will go uh, 12 to 15 feet. And if you've got all those nutrients in that soil, and remember that every year there are bacteria and fungi happily breaking down the rocks and pebbles and boulders and things like that, releasing more into your soil, you're not going to run out until the day you somehow manage to solubilize all your parent material. And how many times has anybody ever observed that happening in the history of this planet? Never. (laughs) (laughs) It's so mind-blowing. All of the nutrients necessary are already there. They're just not necessarily there in plant-available form. And in order to make them plant-available, we need bacteria and the fungi. Yep. Bingo, you got it. Yay. It's just amazing. (laughs) It's uh, Uh definitely very new. New observations in the soil world. Yep. And um, kind of when I first, when it kind of came to me in an uh, aha moment of, you know, where do all these nutrients come from? If we're in this sequoia old growth forest, these trees have been pulling out all this massive amount of nutrient for the last 2,000 years. How is it they can still be growing? You know, and, and sitting down and trying to calculate and all of a sudden going, oh, I am so stupid. <laughs> then right there in front of my face yeah. for my whole entire life, all these nutrients are present in the soil already. So your plant is not sucking the soil dry every single growing season. Just make sure that you put back organic matter because that's a lot of nutrition that you don't need to be burning it off into the atmosphere. You know, you burn the residues and you should just be watching the the visual image you should have would be um, your money flying through the air, Mm -hmm. going off and causing problems someplace else. You need all that residue material, but you need to turn it into good, healthy compost. Get all the right biology, all the organisms your soil is going to need just in case it was a bad winter and and a whole bunch of your beneficial organisms froze to death or they couldn't go dormant fast enough to prevent from being frozen. Or, you know, in the summertime when it gets way, way hot in the soil, same thing. Sometimes it's so fast a conversion um, going from, you know, 60 degrees at night to 110, 115 degrees during the day, you are going to be losing organisms. 
And so you're going to need to put them back. But it's only those extremes and in a large um, way, the the heat problem that we've got in the West, um, we've never, like British Columbia, um, got up to 115 degrees earlier this year. Yeah, and it's madness. It is. It's crazy. That's never happened before in the history of our civilization. So um, what are those organisms supposed to do? We're going to have to get out there and put on some good compost to replenish those organisms that were killed by these absolute first time ever temperatures that that these ecosystems have um, had to experience this year. Mm-hmm. So we're, we need to be making really good compost with that massive amount of good um, uh, diversity of all of the organisms the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa and the nematodes and the microarthropods and the earthworms and the incontraeids and the spiders and the mites and all of those things are part of that soil food web and have a role and function to play. And when I was in graduate school, I went around, my major professor suggested that I should go and talk to all the other people in the soils community at Oregon, at Colorado State University. And so I went and talked to a few of them and asked, you know, here's my project, fungi, looking at active, not active, looking at what's the function of those fungi in the soil, and asked if um, this was a, a good project to be doing. And all of them looked at me like, I think this is a really bad, bad idea. When you get done with your PhD, you have to be doing something to give you to be ready to get a job. Mm. When you're looking at this for your PhD, nobody is going to hire you. There's not going to be anyone because soil organisms don't do anything in the soil. They're just there. You know, it took me back the first couple of times I heard that, like, Oh no, you know, because I I I do want to I do want to be able to sell myself in the job marketplace. I want to get a job. Um, Goodness, but, I'm glad you persevered. Yeah, <laughs> isn't was, that such a funny perspective? Though they're just there; they're not really serving any purpose. It's such a limited human way of looking at a complex natural system. Yeah, the, not knowing or understanding these things are very important. They're critical in the soil. Nature doesn't just keep stuff around because I don't know, it's cute or, you know, she, <laughs> or it's uh, terrifying but, looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One or the other. Um, they're only there because they do something. What is it that they do? And so it was clearly there for me to try to figure out. And luckily there was a whole group of other people that were reaching those same conclusions at the same time. So when I finished my PhD, I went to work with the Natural Resource Ecology Lab people who were already trying to figure this out. It's just that they weren't microbiologists. They didn't understand bacteria. They didn't understand fungi. So when I came on board, it was like, uh, guys, uh, fungi don't just like hang out in the soil and make uh, complex food resources. Sorry. That is one of the least of the things that they do. Um, yes, they do it. But how about bacteria? What do they do? And it was very much kind of the the youngest person on the group teaching all the oldsters how f- soil actually 
works, how it how it functions. And we didn't know all of the re- things that that organisms in the soil did at that time. We've uh, I started out with three overarching principles that microorganisms were really important for, and we've already talked about those. And we started adding the next principle, um, you know, building soil structure, um, making certain that, that the the uh, uh, toxic or, uh, toxic materials were decomposed in your soil, especially if you're going to an agricultural field that has had inorganic fertilizers, pesticides, all those things applied. How are you going to get rid of those toxic materials? Because those toxic materials have accumulated in your soil. There's no one left in that dirt to decompose those materials. And so they're going to hang out. You can't just kind of mindlessly um, go out and assume your next crop is going to do just fine because all those toxic materials are still there and they're still killing the organism. So how do you deal with that? Well, there are a lot of microorganisms. that That's their function in part is to decompose all those toxic materials. There is nothing that's been made so far on this planet that we haven't been able to find something that will decompose it. Right. I remember, yeah, I remember <laughs> when some of the, um, what did they call them? Uh, synthetic herbicides came out and we started, people started applying them and then they would take that plant material and put it in their compost piles and nothing decomposed in their compost pile. You could not make compost out of all of that good organic matter because the herbicide was still killing everything in that pile. And man, we started looking for things that could decompose it and finally found them in some thermal pools in Yellowstone National Park. Wow. So, so you don't destroy all your national parks because there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know anything about. And where are we going to go find these organisms if all these natural areas are gone? Right. That's why it's so important to deal with toxicity in, in place as well. Instead yeah. of moving really horrible toxic waste dumps to other yeah. places to deal with it. It's the silliest thing I can think of is let's dig up all what we think is contaminated and put it into another container and transport it, probably contaminating everything along the way, and then dump those um, 55-gallon drums into a big hole in the ground and cover it up and pretend like you've dealt with the problem. No, you've just got a second problem right? as well as the first. So. Deal with it in place. There is biology out there that will deal with it. You may have to put a whole lot of compost in there to give those organisms the food to eat so it can do the decomposition of those toxic materials. And then like uh, sequestering carbon. And one thing that is, it's not even apparent to a lot of people who are mycologists is that when fungi are decomposing the materials that they de- decompose very well, all of the excess carbon with a fungus is not blown off into the atmosphere. Most of those fungi take those carbons and put it on an inside layer of the hyphal um, tube and makes that hypha stronger and stronger. So when a microarthropod comes along, 
one of those ones that have the real scary faces, comes <laughs> along and tries to take a bite out of that fungal hypha because that's what it eats. That's its food resource. The fungal hypha is too tough. The microarthropod can't clamp down. It can't rip a part of it uh, of the of the fungal hypha. And you know, if you rip part of the fungal hypha apart, then you can eat the rest of it pretty easily. So you prevent the fungus is um, not going to die. So it, it really behooves the micro the um, fungi to have that inside layer uh, re. Um, you know, make it firmer and firmer and firmer, constantly putting down more and more layers of carbon. But you can then think about carbon sequestration in the soil. It's increased by a massive amount. There's some uh, early data coming out from New Mexico State University where um, Dr. David Johnson is doing these kinds of experiments and showing the higher the fungal biomass, the greater the amount of carbon sequestered. and you know, arid systems, semi-arid, mature or uh, um, tropical rainforests, things like that. Um, have to we have to do all of that experimentation in all of those conditions, so we mm-hmm. know how to get this response and um, how to make the most of it. If we want to sequester carbon and get it back into the soil from whence it came, we've got to start understanding bacteria and fungi. Bacteria, when they eat something, bacterial biomass has five carbons for every one nitrogen. So you can't have a whole lot of carbons in bacterial biomass because it's a one to five, it's a five to one ratio. Right. Whereas when we look at um, fungi, especially the older hyphae, the C to N ratio on a fungal hypha may be upwards of three hundred carbons for every one nitrogen because it stores it sequesters all of that carbon. So when a bacterium eats its food source, the food resource is typically about 30 carbons for every one nitrogen. But the bacterium can only be five carbons for every one nitrogen. So there's a huge imbalance there. And what does that bacterium do to get rid of the extra carbons? Blows it off as CO2. Right. So this is where I think we should touch on with industrial agriculture. Most people know that industrial agriculture causes a lot of carbon emissions, but they don't understand why that's happening. Yep. From my understanding, it's because of tillage. And, and every time you till, when you mix and churn that soil around, you're getting bacteria moved from a place where they'd eaten everything up and are now going to sleep. Once you mix it, you've spread all those bacteria up against whole new areas of really great food. And so as soon as you're done tilling, the bacteria are going, oh, look at this. Oh, party time. And I'm going to multiply every 20 minutes. That bacterium is going to multiply. In 24 hours, you have over a million individuals of bacteria where you only started with one. Imagine that respiration going on all of those bacteria releasing all of that carbon and you've also destroyed your fungal network in the soil by going through and breaking everything up slicing dicing and crushing and the bigger organisms the same thing happens to them you know some of a lot of the good guy nematodes are crushed to death they're you know cut in half they're cut into pieces Um, the microarthropods if they didn't notice the tractor coming and and get out of the way, 
all, almost all of them are going to be killed by that tillage equipment. You know, with something like a key line plow or a yeoman's plow, you can, you know, get um, long, straight, narrow uh, incisions, knife-like incisions into your soil. So you're getting good oxygen down into your soil, maybe breaking up some of the, um, breaking up some of the compaction. But certainly you cannot be doing something like a rototill or chiseled plows or a disc plow that just completely crumble everything in that soil slice, dice, crushing and destroy. So the only thing, I'm sorry, go ahead. The only thing that's left are bacteria. Right. But for someone listening to this, who grows food on a really large scale, I know it's, it's kind of scary to be in that position, I think at this time in humanity's history and, you know, how can we ask them to approach farming on a large scale without tilling? What we want to do is put in composting operations all over the world where the farmers would just come to that compost operation. They could say, well, I'm growing corn or I'm growing broccoli or I'm growing, well, it's this kind of compost you want. Mm -hmm. And here, buy however many bags of compost you need to go back home and inoculate that into your residue of organic material. Make sure there's enough moisture, there's enough um, air in that pile that the inoculum that you brought back gets all these really good indigenous local organisms because that's all we allow our um, our, the people that are going to be making this compost have to keep it to the indigenous local um, species of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, etc. Because as soon as you get something that's from outside your bioregion, those organisms aren't going to grow mm-hmm. in your materials. So it doesn't do you any good to buy an inoculum that's from far, far away. Those microorganisms can't live here. So get the local indigenous. You've got to have um, growers, um, people, someone who will make that compost for you. So that's pretty much what we're trying to do is get people to make that compost every place um, all around the world. And then um, with companies like um, uh, TriPoint Ag, they've got teams of people that can help folks um, get through the first couple of years, get all of this under their belts where they can um, learn how to apply these organisms to the soil, what it means when this is occurring in your soil. Um, So then we can give you the appropriate um, advice on how to deal with that particular problem. All right. And so if they have a lot of compaction already from years of, you know, chemical agriculture and tilling, what do you recommend initially to kind of jumpstart this healing process and transition to using biology? Well, it, it, you know, it's that we were just talking about the horrors of tillage and now I'm going to say something that seems like kind of, it's kind of the opposite of lane. You're going to recommend tillage. Yeah. One last time that you will till because you do have to break up that massively compacted layer that most farms have. You know, if you go out to into somebody's uh, pasture or their agricultural field, especially this time of year where very dry, they've got a salt layer of front left from evaporation. You push that metal rod into the ground and you push just as hard as you can and then lean over. And how deep is that metal rod been able to go in? 
you know, quarter inch, half inch. Right. That's where your living roots are right now. And they're, especially in the heat, especially in the dryness, they've all but shriveled up because they're being subjected to such horrible conditions. So um, we want to till that compaction layer up one last time where you will need to till. But what you also then want to be tilling in is some really good compost. Or if you don't have enough solid compost or it's difficult for you to put solid compost out there, we're going to make an extract from your compost. And that's what you're going to be uh, drenching down the rows. And it doesn't really matter if you're a um, perennial plant or you're an annual plant. The same diagnosis uh, needs to be made. We need to know what biology you're missing in your soil. So we make sure that the missing groups are replenished and rejuvenated in your soil. So those organisms will immediately start to build structure. So your soil is never going to be compacted again. Um, You're going to start getting the nutrient cycling that's needed. We want to have people put perennial crop, uh, excuse me, perennial cover plants. Mm. Start, you know, go out and broadcast some of the perennial species in, in our foundation classes we have lists of different kinds of, of uh, perennial um, cover plants that people have found useful in various places. Like some of my favorite um, ground covers are things like um, dican- di- dichondra. Excuse me. Um, I love any of the isotomas. They are so they're really small. They don't grow all that tall, but they are intensely colored blues and reds and golden flavors. It's they are fun little um, plants to have spread out all under all of your crop plants. Yeah, it's so beautiful as well. Yeah, and you're yeah. protecting your soil against yeah. the compaction that occurs because rainfall falling onto your soil surface causes compaction down at about four to six inches. And so you've got to have something that's going to capture that energy of falling. And so get the vegetation out there and, you know, they're not harmed. They're not destroyed. So a lot of those uh, perennial plants are, you know, you can drive over them two or three times a year and that doesn't kill them. They just spring Mm -hmm. right back up. You can't drive over them every day. Yeah, you know, so you know there are limits. So these are all things that maintain that really beneficial sets of microorganisms in the soil. They need to be fed. Um, there needs to be this nutrient cycling. Your plants need to be getting the nutrients that it requires from the soil. Your microorganisms need to be getting the exudates from your plants. So both parts of the deal, uh, it's being a mutualistic interaction. Absolutely. And it's keeping the soil cooler. It's helping not so much water evaporation to occur. So would you suggest in like a row cropping scenario that your row crops are planted between perennial ground cover? Yep. And and what we typically want people to do is get that uh, perennial mix that you can drive over in the driving rows. Mm -hmm. Um, But then in the... um, beds that we that you're growing your tomatoes potatoes whatever um 
we'll we'll go down a furrow down the middle in the springtime, drop the seed in. We'd like to have people put an application of the really good biology right around that um, seed or soak the seed to begin with in a good compost um, tea. So all of those organisms are already adhered to the seed. So dropping that in, um, you close over with their, the following disc. Um, and that's removed your, you know, so if you look at the furrow or the row going like this, all of this has been cleared of the above ground cover plants. So they're out here and they're growing. Those cover plants will start to grow typically, but just about the point where they're barely getting in towards the furrow, the seed will have germinated, up pops the cotyledons, and already your crop plant is starting to shade your cover plants. So you don't have that competition. That's so much of the problem with weeds is that they'll overgrow your crop plant because your crop plant doesn't need 100% nitrate in order to grow. Though all, every crop that we've ever looked at requires some amount of NH4. And so if all you've got in your soil is nitrate, you have set the stage for the weeds to just go you know, crazy mm-hmm. and they'll be above your crop plant within days. So you want to prevent that by getting a, some amount of fungi growing in that soil because it's the fungi that keep that nitrogen present as NH4. Because the pH around a fungus, because of the organic acids that they produce as a waste compound, it keeps the pH down around 6.5. Perfect for the plants that we like to grow in our, in our gardens or in our large agricultural fields. Mm-hmm. I found it really interesting in your course, you talk about how um, a plant can sort of access different levels of pH throughout the soil. Because bacteria, the bacterial glues are incredibly alkaline, and then the fungus is more acidic. Yep. So I'm just curious, if I'm looking at a soil that's super, super alkaline, like I'm doing a project right now in McAllen, Texas, the soil down there is like 7.58, you know, really high on the alkalinity scale. And I, I did send out for a soil analysis before taking this course that I'm taking currently. I hope to be able to do this for my clients in the future. Um, But it didn't really, you know, said, yeah, you could try to put in lime and gypsum and different things, which I now realize is not good advice. Um, Could I basically just assume that that's going to be a really bacterial heavy soil because of alkalinity? Yeah. Typically it's a real good giveaway. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and often I'll just take a few samples just to have the data, because if we want to ever turn this into a scientific paper, you have to have the data. Um, and so you can look at you know, what is the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, and you can do it pretty quickly. You, you don't have to be crazy um, specific. Um, we're, not, we're not even beginning to try to be, um, you know, uh, rev, uh, have a I love it. I love it when the brain goes blank with the words (laughs) I'm trying to come up with. Uh, Statistically significant to the third decimal place. Not necessary. Um, Let's have three significant digits, but, you know, often with bacteria, we've got 
billions of bacteria per gram of soil. Mm-hmm. And everything's going to be out of whack for almost everything because that's going to you know, keep the nitrate around as the predominant form of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so be looking at your soil to figure out exactly what's going on. But when you read that soil chemistry report and you can see a pH that's way high, um, you should be worried. Right. You want to be working to get that fungi in the soil. Although we have done the trick where in um, Utah, um, there there were people growing crops. I uh, It was alfalfa that they were growing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pH in the soil was 11. Wow. Yeah. And they said, but this is one of our most productive fields. Hmm. And so when they put the uh, alfalfa in, when they planted the alfalfa, I went in and looked at the soil right around the root system of the alfalfa, and the root system was 6.5. Oh, wow. So there's some pretty clever bacteria in there that just were hanging around waiting for the root systems, waiting for all that good, juicy um, exudate to be produced, and they immediately drop the pH around the root systems of the plants. Um, so you can get that kind of productivity. Mm-hmm. What What's really wrong is that um, when you go out and you take a soil sample, you're digging in those places that typically aren't anywhere close to where the roots were. And so, you know, you're sending, you're filling up your little bag with, you know, take a trowel full there, take a trowel full someplace else, take a third, and that's what you're going to send. Mm-hmm. Well, those are all from the driving rows where it is totally bacterial dominated. Um, if you don't, if you're not careful to get the sample from the root system, you're going to have a very biased um, understanding of what's going on in your field quite often. So I think more more often it happens. The you know the rows are in more or less the same place every single year, and um, you have microorganisms growing in there that are actually doing the job of altering the pH for you. All right, that's good to know. So try to get the soil sample as close to the plants as possible. Yep, we try to go um, you know look at where the drip line is on your plant. Where did the leaves end? So. That's the drip line. You can always think of it as if a drop of water is falling from the sky, where is that drop of water going to miss the plant? Just barely mm-hmm. versus a you know, quarter of an inch over, that drop of water is going to be impacting on the canopy. And there's your drip line. Right. So we want to go halfway between the drip line and the stem of the plant. That's where we want to take all of our samples hmm. because then you reduce the probability that you're going to be sampling from someplace that's strictly bacterial or someplace that's strictly fungal. We've done, I'll let the plant ha- do the job of controlling the biology the way the plant wants it. And then you know, where are you going to take uh, a little bit of soil inoculum perhaps to put into your compost for next year? Take it from halfway between the drip line and the and the uh, stem of the plant because that's the biology that the plant is encouraging. That's what it needs. So make sure you've got a lot of those kinds of organisms growing in your compost pile. 
So interesting. There's so much good information. I feel like I, my brain is always just overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just have to come back and do podcasts every six months or something until, <laughs> until you've put it all together. I always, I always feel like it's, it's a giant three-dimensional picture puzzle that we're trying to put together. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, you, you work and you work and you work. Where does this, where does this go? Where does this go? And all of a sudden it finally fits. And it's like, oh, I got one piece in the <laughs> six billion piece, three-dimensional picture of how agriculture should work. Right. Uh, so much to, to learn. Absolutely. Yep. See, it's just that God didn't want us to be late, to, to be um, bored. Um, yeah, I wanted that. to always have us something to do. So when How did boring. you first form the Soil Food Web? Um, the Soil Food the Web, actually, um, the business, yeah. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah not the name. Um, the, I first started when I was at um, Oregon State University. We started a company called um, the Soil Microbial Biomass Service. And it was offered by OSU, but it was my lab and my, um, you know, I had to come up with the money to pay for the people to do all of the work as well as myself. Um, so that lasted while, while I was at uh, Oregon State University. Um, in 1995, I could see kind of the handwriting on the wall where I was doing work in genet- with genetically engineered organisms. and. Um, uh, a graduate student of mine was doing testing with a genetically engineered bacterium that if it had been released out into the real world would probably, because, and I have to say probably, because we didn't do any experiments out in the real world with this thing. Because if it had been released, it would have killed all terrestrial plants. Whoa. Yeah. And when you come to that realization that this thing has that kind of potential from to be modified from a beneficial bacterium in that would always benefit the plants in the soil. I was really good at building structure. It was really good at um, nutrient cycling processes, very protective of the root system of the plant. And with this modification that was done by a laboratory over in Germany, um, modified this microorganism to produce alcohol from the exudates of the plant and the um, the um, um, dead plant material could use all of that kind of carbon and it would produce alcohol at levels around the root system that would have destroyed root system function. And a plant with no roots is not going to... St- it's not going to stand up for very long. You mm-hmm. wouldn't be growing carrots. You wouldn't be growing peas. You wouldn't be growing. You know, just think of all of the things we grow for food. Think of all the things in our orchards and uh, pastures would no longer, or at least they'd be in really bad shape. Mm-hmm. What do you do to, how do you deal with a um, microorganism that has been released? Well, look at how uh, successful we've been with uh, um, COVID. Right. Yeah. Once it escapes the laboratory, that's it. It we're you're gonna suffer the consequences until it's run its course and Mother Nature finally says, Okay, enough of this. Right. And 
you know, comes along with some microorganism or something and takes care of the problem. I don't think people would be left after this thing got released to the, to, to you know, so it was scary. That is very scary. I mean, the, all we the realized polluted, all of the earth would start sliding off into the oceans and people <laughs> would have no food. <laughs> yep. The only place plants would grow would be in riparian zones and wetlands. And wow. then, of course, aquatic plants would be okay because they already have mechanisms for dealing with alcohol production in the root system of the plant. Mm-hmm. So I could see the handwriting on the wall that um, I had kind of made me myself persona non grata to the university higher-ups because they were strongly invested in getting money from Monsanto. And Monsanto definitely didn't want any of this kind of information to to get out, um, that there could be, there might be, that there was an example of a genetically engineered organism that would be devastating. Mm-hmm. So um, I had been told by people that um, the, you know, the university had been told to get rid of me. I'd, you know, where's the proof? sure go ahead tell me make me feel better um but i've never seen anything but every once in a while it plays around in my head so um basically yeah things were made very unpleasant for me at the university and i finally said i'm i'm not gonna fight this anymore and so uh resigned from the university in 2001 and i had started my own business um in um, 1996 so I had enough clientele come into the lab wanting samples done mm-hmm. and helping them um, grow better crops. And uh, it's amazing when you help somebody um, get the extra million dollars from their agricultural systems, um, they tend to be fairly free with the money after that point. Like, yeah. Sure, I, I, can, I can pay you uh, $5,000 for these samples. Not a problem. Well, you better say that, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so we teased each other, you know, so um, lots of good people um, from all over the world. And I, were, I was starting to give talks around the world as well at the same time. So I got all my sightseeing, all the places on the planet that I really wanted to go. I got there because I was invited to come and give talks. And then I would just stay a day or two later and, you know, go wandering through Paris and go wandering through Berlin and go wandering all of these different places. It's uh, um, the only place left, you know, hint, hint, um, is (laughs) Iceland. I've never been to Iceland. I'd really like to go there. And um, some of the, and Kathmandu. I'd really like to to go to that city. Uh, me too. Yeah. Just to, imagine, like from your perspective, having struck out on your own so that you can continue to spread the truth about these essential needs that we, we have to understand or we're not going to survive as a species on this planet. We might take out all the other life on earth as well in the process. And, but to, to, you know, be be so invested in the university system and then have to take this leap of faith go out on your own. I imagine in those moments where you found yourself being paid to go to your dream destinations, you must've just been like, ah, I have done it. (laughs) I got to go to Madrid and somebody paid me for it. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. (laughs) Yep. 
entrepreneur yep. goals right there. Yep. So, um, yeah, everybody can do the same thing. Come learn how to do the Soil Food Web assessments at Soil Food Web School, where we're teaching the foundation courses. And then we um, have mentors that help you learn to be a consultant. You know, how do you talk to your clients? How do you um, get all of this stuff um, down? What is the information that you need to get from your clients before you get started? And, and that can quite often be difficult because somebody who's just bought the land, they have no idea mm-hmm. what's left in that soil. They don't know, has Roundup been used? Has this been used? Is this other thing? Well, why didn't you ask the previous owners right. about that before you bought? Well, they never thought about it. It was not it was something that was never discussed that you really need to know what the probable problems are going to be. Mm-hmm. We, That's just hoping that the previous owners would be honest in disclosing a lot of that information as well. Yep. Yep. You, you, you know, you have to reassure them that you're not going to come after them with a lawsuit or something. So would you, would, you know, could you just please tell me what all toxic chemicals that it was that you put on here? And then, you know, they pull out the ledger that's like this thick. And, well, it's all of these things. Over the last uh, 50 years that we had the farm, every toxic chemical known to man, well, maybe not all of them, but all the toxic agricultural chemicals known to man had been applied to the place at one time or another. Mm-hmm. And it's always fun when you, when you reach a, a layer of compaction that's down quite a bit further and you realize that's where the 2,4-D is in concentrated form. Mm-hmm. And it's still happily moving down through the soil. What's that going to do to your root system? When your root system hits that level of concentrated toxic chemical. So we're going to get into injecting. How far down do we have to inject? Well, let's see. The root system of my perennial plants are now down at about this level. Um, We're two feet away from the concentrated something or other that I think is 2,4-D, maybe not. Um, What do you do? And you've got to get the biology down there. So we have some fun contraptions that different growers have made to be able to get um, the microorganisms that can decompose 2,4-D or DDT or all the different bad guys. Um, It's possible. Just have to get the inoculum down there. That's amazing. (laughs) Very helpful. Keeps me busy and in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. That's a really tough thing about this. I know I've had conversations um, just coming from a permaculture perspective with people who are involved in large-scale chemical agriculture who become very angry when you suggest that people can grow their own food on a small scale organically and, you know, are very threatened by that. As you know, as with most anybody, when you're talking about taking away their livelihood, the only thing they know is uh, how to take a soil chemistry report, look at the soil chemistry report and say, well, this is what my books tell me. And this is what I got from the chemical company. And here's what you're supposed to apply. And now you're telling me that you don't want to be putting on lime and gypsum. You don't want to be putting on uh, glyphosate. You don't want to be putting on all these 
but that's everything that he needs to have you buy in order to keep his salary coming. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, people can get very nasty about this. They should just hire a soil food web specialist to come and (laughs) turn it all around. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So, you know, teach those people that are pushing the toxic chemicals yeah, and and tell them that they they need to get off drugs, right? And start learning the biological way, the organic way of doing this. So, yeah, it's going to take a while to get everyone converted, but especially when so much of what we do puts carbon back into the soil, um, and we can, you know, yeah, we can sell carbon uh, sequestration, but you know, you're doing good for the planet altogether. Mm-hmm. If we all just got going on ma- taking our waste materials and making compost out of them uh, and applying that compost in a logical way so it stays aerobic the whole entire time, we're going to be able to take all of that elevated CO2 in the atmosphere and put it back into the soil in a very short period of time. Depends on you know what figures you use and what assumptions you make. But it's going to be somewhere like between 6 to 12 years. And we could get all of that carbon dioxide back into the soil. Say goodbye to climate change. If we don't pay attention, yeah, we're just going to be this little toasty fried planet circling the sun. That's something I wanted to ask you. And maybe that's your answer to it. Or maybe it's a different answer. But what could, you know, just an individual person on a small home-sized plot do to try to heal the land around them? It's um, You want to have demonstration areas. And that's what convinces most people, mm-hmm. especially when you're out there sunbathing, surrounded by gorgeous flowers and veggies and things like that. And your neighbor is still out there you know, swearing underneath the breath because another plant died, another plant plant bit the dust and right and they, they turn around and look at you and what is wrong with you <laughs> that your plants are not <laughs> dying like mine are well come on over let me explain and it's really great to have the demonstration for them and it and they 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 seem to constantly be saying are you telling me that i don't have to be putting on these inorganic fertilizers that are so expensive Are you telling me I don't have to be using glyphosate? Are you telling me I don't have to? Yeah, exactly. I'm telling you. You must stop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For your own health and for the planet's health. You must stop killing Mother Nature. She gets angry at us. And, you know, the West has seen Mother Nature's anger at uh, the way we've screwed things up. Well, so is the East Coast, uh, the Midwest. Yeah. All those storms that are. You know, they haven't seen a storm like this in 500 years. You know, a storm in um, Germany, and it killed some 300 people. And they've, they haven't seen a flood like that in their memory. Right. It's like Mother so, Nature's going, okay, shake off a little bit here. Yep. Yeah. Start paying attention. Or you know what, guys? Every time you pay attention, I'm just going to get angrier. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be nastier. And if you don't pay attention to that, it's going to get nastier. Yeah. Um, and Mother Nature doesn't need 
us, we've done our job. If you think of it as human beings were put on this planet to dredge up all the carbon that was buried deep down in the soil, bring it back up to the, uh, up to the surface. See, we've done our job. <laughs> what does she need us for anymore? So maybe we need to find a different role and fun- uh, function for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I so believe with our, you know, with our five-fingered dexterity and our aesthetic minds and our ability for abstract thought, humans probably were designed to be the gardeners and tar- caretakers of yep. this gorgeous planet. And that that role and function got twisted and it got, you know, it's how do we let people who only thing they care about is money, how did we mm. let them get in charge? Right. Um, okay, we're going to have to think about how do you, what do we do exactly to exit the, you know, the way you determine whether is somebody is a successful human being is by the amount of money they make. Right. Do they wear designer clothes and are they eating dinner at the top restaurants in town? That's not what you should be. We should be gauging somebody's yep. worth. That is not the right thing. What are they doing to promote the health of all people, of the whole planet? Those should be the most respected people. Mm -hmm. And people are making massive amounts of money should be brushed aside. Right. Or at least looked at very closely. Mm -hmm. You know, what are your contributions and how are you making that money? And is that good for other people or is it harmful to our global population? Yeah. And if you're making all those billions of dollars and you have people in your mailroom that are getting under um, the, you know, a, a live, livable wage, right? you should be ashamed of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's what everybody should be turning around and pointing fingers at those folks. So. I agree. <sighs> Yes, in the best of all worlds, it yeah. would happen. Um, we've got a long way to come, but it'll keep us occupied, right? <laughs> yeah, I think there is a shift taking place, and more and more people are looking for alternatives to traditional education and to traditional just traditional ways of being humans on this planet. And I'm so grateful to you for presenting an option for learning really high level soil biology without me having to go pay for another $70,000 degree at a university where I would maybe get to take like 15 core credits towards actually learning soil biology. Yeah. Yeah. I, something has gone awry in, in uh, teaching people how to do things because people don't come out of university and college with the level of expertise that I need them to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, that's not even requiring them to have any kind of specialty in soil or biology. They just plain don't have the basic knowledge of the scientific method. Right. Or, or they're mired in the chemical form of doing the scientific method. Um, yeah. And if I, I've, of course, I, I am not mired in the science, in the chemical way of doing anything because I work, everything is biology. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have an enzyme, things are not going to work the way the engineers think they're going to work. 
I drive engineers crazy. <laughs> but that's as it should be. <laughs> yeah, last year I, hi- I hired two boys who were fresh out of college, both had soil biology degrees, and was really excited to work with them. And my background is in design and, you know, soil biology has always been like such an interest of mine, but all my learning up until starting your soil food webs program has just been on my own and through reading. And so I started trying to talk to them about relationships happening in the soil and they had no idea what I was talking about. Oh yeah. Protozoa and um, you know, nitrogen fixers. And it was so bizarre. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, you're both so deeply in debt right now. Yeah. And yeah. Like, how did you specialize in that? And yeah, how do you walk about saying that you have a degree in soil biology? Mm-hmm. Where's the biology part of what they taught you? Right. Um, That's true. Yeah. The, because so many of the people in university seem to think that bacteria are the only thing in soil and and that's it and they don't really do anything important so you know that they're they're just there to respire carbon back into the atmosphere or something i don't know but when you <laughs> when you start thinking no really there are fungi and there are protozoa and there are nematodes and there are microarthropods and there are earthworms and there are incatraeids and there are, you know just go on spiders and all the other things uh, how can they call themselves soil biologists right when all they know about are bacteria this reminds me of something that I've learned in your course. You know, people understand, okay, so you've got your fungi, you've got your bacteria, they're protecting the roots of your plants. But what about, you know, airborne plant um, diseases? You know, can I still spray the above ground parts of my plant in order to protect them? And what we've learned is that that's actually not necessary. The bacteria are dispersed all over the top of the plant with their taxi cab species, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't take long because every time a fly lands on the surface of soil, real soil, that has all those organisms, they're getting loaded up with a really good inoculum. And then they fly up into the leaves and they walk across the leaves everywhere they walk for the next several days. They're leaving behind a whole bunch of organisms that are happily now growing on the exudates being produced by the leaves or by the stems or by the trunk or by the fruit or by the flowers. And it doesn't take long. You don't have to do any work at all Mm -hmm. after you've gotten over that first kind of initial growing season where we've got the biology in the soil, but we don't quite have it up on the above ground part of the plant. That's the only time I'll ask people to make a compost tea to spray on the foliage so you get all of the foliage covered. Um, sometimes we have to deal with um, different kinds of diseases on leaf surfaces or on the flower, on the fruit. Mm-hmm. And we'll spray then a total of three times because quite often it's a, a colonization process where um, the first wave of colonizers arrive and things are so bad, they're so out of shape that most, uh, you know, 90% of that first wave dies. They started to get things changed to back to normal, if you will, but 
they didn't quite get there. So then you've got to send out a second wave. Mm -hmm. And the second wave probably um, survives about 50%. They would make it without any further applications from the human being. But, you know, just to be on the safe side, I'd like to have you not have any problems with your fruits, you know, oranges and in Florida, just three applications of a good compost tea, but spaced apart by about every 15 days. Um, so three applications is usually enough to really get everything set up and functioning properly. So the disease causing organisms are no longer capable of taking over. Right. Yep, same same thing in the soil. Sometimes it takes three or more times of you, you apply your compost, you mix it in, you come back in um, two weeks and you look at the soil and you go, well, the fungi came up, but I still can't see any protozoa. I saw one nematode. That's really not quite enough. So then you drench with a compost extract. And because you're already getting their passageways and hallways uh, are being built by the bacteria and fungi in the soil, now you get good infiltration down into that soil with your next application and maybe a third application. Um, but there's where you really want to be looking with your microscope. Um, what organisms are still missing, if any? Right. And if you can see that they're there in your soil, you don't have to add them again. I know a lot of people just take that attitude of, well, you know, you've said, you know, after 15 days, apply. After 15 days, apply. After 15 days, apply. I'll just keep applying every 15 days for the whole entire growing season. Well, okay. If you really want to do that much work, I'm <laughs> not going not to say you can't, but um, I really think you could knock off after spray number three. Check just to make sure. Yeah. Um, it's just mind-blowing. You're talking about completely rehabilitating systems for the long-term in three applications. Whereas, you know, farmers are used to spraying multiple times a season every year for their whole lives, their careers as farmers. Yep. And um, they're breathing in that stuff or they've got to wear a moon suit. Mm -hmm. And I don't see most of the farmers wearing moon suits. Yeah, I mean, the, the levels of cancer in farmers are incredibly high. Yeah, and, and that's exactly the reason, is they keep applying things as if it's not harming them. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's no uh, acute um, damage done. It's not like breaking a leg or, you know, bashing your head against, the, um, against something. Um, it's a slow buildup of those toxic chemicals until nothing you can do about it. Right. And then when they're constantly spraying the crops with that chemical nitrogen, it will run off into rivers and waterways. And I was, I heard somewhere that in Des Moines, Iowa, in this, like in the spring, or I'm sorry, maybe it's in the fall after all the summer rains come and wash all of that chemical nitrogen fertilizer off they actually issue a blue baby warning where they tell people in the city of Des Moines not to use any tap water because people will die. Yeah. It's that toxic. Yeah. There are a number of different places where that is true. Um, even here in Oregon, uh, and in certain years where it's really dry, 
and we um, get the aquifer down really low. Um, once you're down to that last 5% of the water in the aquifer, it's so high in manganese mm. that you can see the rusted um, yellow color around the inside of your sinks or your toilet or your bathtub. Mm. Um, you can't drink the water. You've got to filter it in some way or you've got to go buy the spring water, have right. it delivered to your house. And for me, that's just, it's not right. right. Um, why are we paying taxes to have clean water be delivered to us and they can't deliver right so and we know that soil that has structure that has biology filters and cleans water yep just run it through a filter my favorite filter is to run it through a bunch of compost (laughs) where i where i know what the organisms are so i get rid of a lot of the problem stuff um yeah. So well, I, I have, should, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling bad because I know we've run over by almost 40 minutes now. I'm enjoying our conversation so much. Um, but I should probably ask you the super seven closing questions. You're working on a jingle. Okay. I was going to say, I'm afraid I don't watch enough television to have seen that advertisement yet. (laughs) So my first question for you is, where do you see the soil food web growing forward? Um, We're just going to try to do a global enterprise, I guess, uh, working with other people to make the compost. People have a lot of trouble figuring out how exactly to do the compost. They need time. They need to be relaxed about it. So the only way I think we can really fix that is to start um, having large-scale composting operations all over the planet. Um, Absolutely. uh, We were just talking about some of the things that we have yet to do at the school that will really help people um, be able to much more easily get on board doing this. And step one is somehow getting really good compost to them before they have to make it themselves. When they see the amount of benefit, that's what usually changes their minds and say, then they say, okay, I will make my own compost because it's worth it. All of those other things can go away, but they've accumulated enough cash. They've accumulated enough money by having the compost and they're able to get all these benefits of um, reduced amount of water use so they don't have to pay for the, um, the feet of water that, they are, um, that they've got to pay for in the summertime. Uh, they don't use uh, pesticides anymore. They don't use uh, herbicides. They don't use um, um, inorganic fertilizers. Mm-hmm. When we've worked with um, people in Australia, for example, and we did the whole budget thing for them because we had a graduate student that was doing that for some of their uh, research work. Um, over three, um, over for a three hundred acre farm, they saved two hundred thousand dollars in the first year. Wow! Yeah, and they had more more feed for their animal than they've animals than they've ever had before. They had the least amount of sickness. Um, their um, problems when 
the animals were reproducing when the when the calves were being uh, born uh, was reduced by ninety five percent. So they didn't have veterinary bills. So they it was just just a whole herd of things that were were improved. Um, and so we just we have to have enough demonstration areas right. so that city folk, inner city folk, can see that they can have uh, backyard gardens. They're going to have to do something about the heavy metals that are in their soils, mm -hmm. but we can deal with that as well. So all of this is doable. It's just that we kind of need to get going on it and going on it seriously mm -hmm. so that there's we don't hit the tipping point before we've got everything cleaned up. So there is a time limit that we've got to meet or it's going to be too late for human beings. Right. Yep. All right. What advice do you have for someone who wants to start a business or an initiative and they're about to get going that you wish you would have been given? Oh gosh, more money. <laughs> <laughs> Always, you know, whenever you whenever you're diving into a new project, it costs money. Um and there's usually a few burps along the way. So having uh, a successful business where we've now have some money to do some additional things. Um, that's really great. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, clear ideas about what you're doing and what you want to achieve and being able to advertise to other people. And I'm not good at that end of it. You know, I'm, I'm the researcher, not um, so much the runner of the business. I've got to leave it to other people to run the business. I'm more than happy to be on the cutting edge and be working on adding the microarthropods into the food web in a much clearer fashion. Let's get the macroarthropods into and part of that food web and show people that if you think that um, nematodes and protozoa are good predators, just wait until you see what's going on when we start purposely adding microarthropods or macroarthropods or you know should we be adding spiders into our agricultural systems because they do some very important things to reduce pests so there's so much more yet to come we've um, barely begun barely scratched the surface <laughs> so anyone who wants a career come on along there you go we we oh, need great. you <laughs> Um, so what is your required reading or podcast or YouTube channel for our listeners? Uh, I'm, I'm really bad at all of those things. Sorry. <laughs> Quick, tell me what the podcast is. <laughs> Where are you going to be showing this podcast? <laughs> this is the Environmental Harmony podcast, and you can find it wherever podcasts are found. So good recommendation for getting your knowledge out there to the world, definitely. Yep. Okay. Uh, I know that we are going to be we are going to be putting up your information on our website, so oh, thank people you. will be able to see this. Yep. Another yeah. crazy um, talk with Elaine. <laughs> and what is your most favorite plant, if you have one, or one oh, of your most favorite plants? Gosh, I like a whole bunches of them. Um, I really like Bing cherries. Ooh, 
Yeah. And we've got a, a big old Bing cherry just to the side of our house. And I could just stand there when just as all the cherries get ripe and they're all just that deep, dark wine, red colored. I can just stand there and, and eat. Um, usually the crows get very angry at me though. Yeah, <laughs> we, the, the upper stuff is for the crows. Down here, <laughs> this is for us. <laughs> Leave some for us. They're nothing better than a ripe, fresh cherry, I think. Yep, really good. I like, I love lilacs as well. I like jasmine. I like, um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I like a lot of different things. It's, you know, what's my least favorite plant? Poison oak. (laughs) Same here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not allergic or I'm not, I don't react to poison ivy at all, but poison oak it's it's got my number that's for sure so most every other plant on the planet it serves serves its function Mm -hmm. it does what it's supposed to do and even yes i even like dandelions of course i want to pick them before they go off fuzzy white but um that's one way to keep them down i recently got poison ivy really badly i i get poison ivy and poison oak and I was able to successfully treat it for the first time without having to get on steroids using um, like sorry, clay mud masks and then um, impatience, I think skindapsis, forget or touch me not. Uh-huh. It's definitely impatience. Um, the specific epithet I think is skindapsis, but I was amazed. I've, I've been getting it every year horribly since I was little. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up in Minnesota, yeah, um, there was always poison ivy someplace. Leaflets yeah. three, let them be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my next question for you is, what song is your favorite jam right now? What song is my favorite jam, as in like jelly, you mean? or yeah, like you, that you jam out to it. Oh. My favorite one right now is, um, gosh, it's a uh, butter, butter by BTS. Um, I don't know that song. Yeah, um, it's uh, K-pop pop music, and uh-huh. I I really like that particular band. They've got a um, a song out, Dynamite, and I go around all the time. I sing it nonstop. Um, <laughs> and then their next one was Butter, and they just released another one, Permission to Dance. Um, that was pretty good. I like that group. They are, they're nice. really good. I and haven't they, heard them. I'll have to check them out. I'll have to check them out. Yeah. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, they're a sensation. They've appeared on, uh, all those late night talk shows and things like that. And I, I enjoy them because they're very humble. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't act like, well, how dare you speak to me? Like so many, um, pop stars do act. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really do like them. Fun. I'll definitely check them out. I'm out of the okay. pop music loop. So I love asking that question, getting good <laughs> recommendations. Yeah. But obviously I don't know the current slang that people are, are using. <laughs> I, I listen I to the music, but uh, yeah. oh, if you're, uh, that, to you're saying that's your jam. I don't know if that's current slang. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, finally, yeah. how can people reach you? Um, the website is a very good way to get hold of me. Um, you know, so um, Soil Food Web at um, yeah, soilfoodweb.com is the website. Um, if they want to get hold of me, 
the best place to get a hold of me is through Elaine at soilfoodweb.com. I will let you know right now that I don't initially answer those questions. They all come into um, a couple of people handle all of that for me. But the really good questions, they will pass on to me. And good in terms of, well, that's something that we should think about. That's something that, yeah, we need to to do some work on that. Mm -hmm. So hopefully in the, uh, as things are coming along, we're um, getting a farm up and going up in in, um, McMinnville. And we will be um, having internships at the at the farm, as well as some permanent staff that we'll have to hire. So probably next spring would be the, you know, January, February will be when we're, we'll be asking for resumes for people to come and work for us full time or come up for an intern so that you can do a lot of the training if you want to be a consultant and get out there and, and have uh, consultantships. We have uh, probably a good 20 um, just in this local area, uh, people that are out there doing the consulting. And what they always tell me is we need more. We need more people out here helping because they get asked and um, there's nobody, none of the consultants have any time to think about adding anybody more. So we need more more people who are willing to get out there and um, show others and demonstration plots are really the best ways to go because then you have local information for the local growers and, and then find um, the grower groups that you can demonstrate to them um, exactly what's possible following this approach. Absolutely. That sounds like an amazing opportunity and I'm sure that, Tons of people are going to do that. I'd love to do your internship at some point. You can come and be crazy with us. Yeah. (laughs) Talk to the microbes. (laughs) Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you are doing and for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to people about it on my podcast. I appreciate it so much and so inspired by everything that you're doing. Thank you. And thank you for letting me come and bend your ear for the two hours, I think, that we've been doing this. It's been a lot of fun. And I look forward to interacting with you more in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Ciao. Thank you all again so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to the show. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider leaving a review and giving us five stars in your podcast listening platform so that I can continue to have really awesome guests on the show. Thanks again. Have a good day. Bye. All the structures of my time are insecure with false foundations and I look for truth and find